Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here, isn't it? It's a really nice venue. And uh, really, I have to say, uh, given that it's the first time that we've met here, things have gone remarkably smoothly. I'd just like to say Andrew Clark has done a great job. And, uh, and many others along with him. So thank you, everyone who's, who's helped with things. Um, right then, have we got a slide coming up? Thanks, Jess. Take care. Um, I find myself, this is a phrase I find myself using often. I don't know how you end conversations with people. I often say, oh, take care as we go. And that is the phrase that we are going to be picking up this morning. And uh, it's a slightly different sort of a message to one that I normally bring. It's a message of warning. And uh, I'm not quite sure how that's going to go. What I do know is that warning signs are really, really helpful. Our lives are filled with warning signs, like this one. Beware of the dog. If that dog came anywhere near you, you'd be glad that you'd seen the warning sign before you got there. There's lots of other warning signs, different kinds of animals. I don't know if you've ever seen a beware of chickens (laughs) sign or a beware of wild animals or children. I'm not sure which is the scariest of those. Uh, Probably children are able to do more than wild animals are. Um, I don't know what is quite going on here, but whatever that is, I'd like to be warned of it. And of course, there are other sorts of animals that we might just find in our nightmares. Also good to be warned of Godzilla. Um, I have no idea what that is telling us to be careful of. Quicksand, possibly wormholes may open up at any point. Certainly, the person involved looks quite surprised. Um, Thinking of holes that might be a bit of a problem, that can be a problem. You want to be careful of that going on in your life. You also want to be careful of that. That's quite worrying. Something that you may never have thought to be careful about, but in certain countries, uh, this can be a problem. That's a bother. And then lastly, um, this is another warning that began in a foreign language, and I think something went wrong in, trans- Ooh, something went wrong in translation somewhere. I'm not, sh- I'm not even sure what it is that we're supposed to be careful of, but... If any of you are missing a foot, then maybe you can tell us how that can go wrong. He's missing both of his feet. feet. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) So anyway, what we're going to do is look at another text that was originally in another language, which which thankfully has been rather better translated for us into English. It's Hebrews chapter 12, second half of Hebrews chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, please turn there. And we're going to read a text that is a warning. It's a warning text. If you have the NIV, it will be entitled Warning, and specifically a warning against refusing God. I'm going to read from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, where it says, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless, like Esau, who for a single meal 
sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit his blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. Now, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. This is a description of Mount Sinai as the Israelites experienced it when the Ten Commandments were given. You have not come to a mountain like that, the writer says. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded if even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So, See to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. If they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful, and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. There's a lot in those few verses. Uh, One thing that we find there is this story of Jacob and Esau. Let me recap it briefly. You can read it in Genesis chapter 25 and 27. There's a story of two brothers, twins, in fact. And the older one, as was the custom at that time, was due to receive a greater inheritance than his younger twin brother. And this was no small inheritance. It wasn't just the piece of land. It was that his father was Isaac and his grandfather was Abraham, to whom God had spoken, saying, of all peoples, I've chosen you and I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your offspring so much that you will be a blessing to all nations. It was a spiritual promise that would extend through the centuries of a people chosen the offspring of Abraham. And Esau was the older brother standing in line 
to receive the greatest share of the greatest promise that had ever been made to anyone on the face of the earth. What a privileged position. What a place standing in God's grace. And his younger brother came to him one day when he was hungry. Jacob, the younger brother, Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, came to him and said, a bit hungry, I'll tell you what, I'll make you some soup if you give me the firstborn son's greatest blessing, that birthright that you've got by being born first. Let's swap those over. I'll have the greater blessing, you have a bowl of soup. And Esau says, all right then. And what the writer to the Hebrews does is bring him up as an example to us of someone who is casual about grace. So there's a huge promise of blessing from God. And Esau's like, yeah, whatever. Whatever, there's a bowl of soup there, I'll have that. Spiritual blessings, whatever. And the story goes on to say that he later realized what he'd done. He felt cheated by his brother, and he went to his father. Actually, his brother went on to cheat him even more by going into Isaac's presence. And you can read that story in Genesis 27 of how he went and got a blessing that Abraham, Isaac, offspring blessing was passed on to Jacob, who became Israel. That's why we talk about the people of Israel and even the nation of Israel today. The right order of things would have been it's the nation of Esau that we're still speaking about today, grace of God passed on. Now, some of you may know that there was a prophecy when Jacob and Esau were born that it's Jacob who would end up with the blessing. And you might think, oh, how does all of that work? Well, I don't quite know how all of the predestination of God works, but I do know that the writer to Hebrews brings this up as an example for us to learn from. That when you are casual about grace, you miss out on it. And even though later on Esau realized that he'd missed out, and he said, oh, can I now have it? Please, can I now have it? With tears. It's too late. He'd missed out. He put, spiritual, uh, he put material benefits above spiritual blessing. He valued a slap-up meal more than he valued the grace of God. The word that's translated here, uh, sexual immorality, make sure you... See to it that none of you is sexually immoral, it says. That word, the way it was used in the Old Testament, you read, if you read the Old Testament about the people of God prostituting themselves to other idols. It's like we've got this covenant with God. He's our God. We're his people. We're in a committed relationship. But just every now and again, and sometimes for quite a period of time, they turned their back on God and went and worshipped other idols instead. They turned away from the covenant grace of God and went looking for other kinds of benefits. And the word that's used is the word that gets translated again here. They prostituted themselves. They were unfaithful to their marriage partner in spiritual terms, who was Yahweh, their Lord, God. And... Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says that's what Esau was like. He just turned his back on the promises that were made to him. He prostituted himself. He was unfaithful to the calling, amazing calling that he had, and considered some quick re material reward worth giving up all of that to gain. He was a foolish man. 
Why is that quoted in the New Testament? Because don't we know that however many times we muck things up, as Liz was saying, actually learning from failure is really important. Of course we muck things up again and again and again. And the grace of God is available to us. We can always be forgiven. We can always be restored. So why is this brought up as an example for us? Well, to help explain that, the writer goes on to draw a comparison between these two different mountains. First of all, I don't know if you can see that, it's Mount Sinai, all the people of Israel, and then a fair gap between them and the mountain covered in fire and smoke and the presence of God. And he explains to us that this is what happened at one point in history for the people of Israel, as they had become known. Uh, They came to this mountain. It was uh, an earthly mountain. You can go find it. It's a place on earth. And they gathered there. The two key things of their experience were that they were distanced from God. They weren't allowed to set foot on the mountain. Actually, not even an animal that they owned was allowed to set foot on the mountain. And that was cool with them. Because when they saw this thunderous, mighty presence of God, they were like, that. when Moses said, stay away, and they're like, great. Uh, we don't want to go anywhere near th- that. And the words that come out from that are just too much for us anyway. I mean, he's telling us to live in a certain way and we can't bear that. So we're we're happy to stay at a distance. Moses, you go up. It says here, Moses himself was trembling. This presence of God was terrifying. And the people were glad to stay at a distance. The comparison is with Mount Zion. They were trembling with terror. There we go. Mount Zion is a place. It's a physical place as well. It's a hill that's now within the city of Jerusalem. You can go there. Some of you may have been there, in fact. But it's a picture for us as well. The New Testament uses that word Zion to describe the people of God now. It's the same as talking about the church And it goes on to say that after talking, you've come to Mount Zion, and then it lists off all different uh, things that the picture of Mount Zion speaks of. This heavenly Jerusalem, a place to come together that's been given by God from heaven, a city of the, the city of the living God, a place where it's possible to come and meet with him. Thousands upon thousands of angels to the church of the firstborn, this place of gathering now Around Christ is a picture of the people of God. I hope you can see that picture. It's a little bit bleached out. But there's a picture of Jesus taking up the majority of the view. Looks like he's about to flick some switches. Hey, that's a little bit better. It's just a picture of Jesus in the middle with all of these other holy saints gathered. There we go. Gathered around. That's what we've come to. We've come to Jesus. We've not come to a mountain where God's over there and we stay at a distance. We, as God's people, come to surround him, to draw close. There's no longer 
any distance. It's like chalk and cheese from Mount Sinai, from the Old Testament, where we go, please, can we stay away? Now, there's an invitation to come close. There need not be any distance at all between us. Christ comes to embrace us. Amazing, amazing words in the New Testament that we are in Christ. That's even closer than being nearby. And he, by his spirit, is in us. Doesn't get any closer than that. So the distance has been dealt with. But there remains the fact Unrestricted access to God, but God remains awesomely holy. And this is the thing that we can miss. We can think that because we can come close to God, that the best way to think about him is he's he's our best mate. And it's true that there is friendship with God that goes beyond what any other friendship could ever be like, but he remains awesomely holy. And my prayer ahead of this morning is just that God would help us to see that, because I don't know that I've got any words that can communicate this truth. Unless the presence of God comes and the Spirit of God starts to speak to us and to reveal God afresh to us, not only as ever-loving, but also as all-powerful and utterly, utterly holy. You know, the Hebrews used this phrase to describe God, holy, holy, holy. It's the only quality of God's character that is, they say that again, holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, they didn't have words for holier and holiest. You just kept saying it. If there was something that was holy, you said, oh, that's holy. If there was something that was holier, you went, oh, that is holy, holy. (laughs) And when something was the holiest of all, the extreme of any kind of glorious separation that you could imagine, it was holy, holy. Holy, and it's only God who is described as holy, holy, holy. Spirit of God, would you reveal your nature to us afresh? Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help us to understand, help us to see, we pray in Jesus' name. The things that come out in these few verses in Hebrews are themes that run through the book. In Hebrews 10 and verse 28, it says this, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, 
the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Sounds like it's in the wrong bit of the Bible, doesn't it? God is revealed as holy from right from the early pages of the Bible. Think of Moses coming to the burning bush, standing on holy ground. Take your shoes off. It's holy ground. He reveals himself as holy right through the pages of the Old Testament. It's not just a mood he was in for a bit. Got over that now. Decided to be more gracious. His holiness remains. And so we need to take care. It's what it means practically. We don't have to be afraid. Think of the number of times that people met Jesus and he said to them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And we don't have to be afraid because Jesus has made provision for us. He died that we might be forgiven. He made a way into the Father's presence, which is why we can draw close and we can live in Christ and him in us. We don't have to worry. But we do still need to take care because of who God is. Here's a few ways that this passage in Hebrews 12 tells us to take care. One thing it says very clearly is take care to obey. Verse 25, oops, it's a very enthusiastic clicker. There we go. Bad workman blames his tools. Anyway, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. When God speaks, we should obey. Pretty simple, isn't it? When God speaks, we should obey. And in this comparison between Mount Sinai with all the thunder and the trumpet voice and everything and us coming to Christ, the writer to the Hebrew says, look, you've got a better revelation. You've seen more of God and you've not heard it through an angel or through Moses. You've heard it direct from the mouth of God himself in Jesus. So you should obey more. There's not a let off, but a call up. Again, it's a theme that comes right through the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, We must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation, that which has been revealed through Christ. This salvation was announced by the Lord. We have an obligation to remain sensitive to the voice of God. And Here's a question to ask you, the first of three questions to ask you this morning to help this to land. Is there anything that God has said to you that you have put to one side? Is there anything that God has said to you that you've put to one side? This morning God says, take care to obey. Esau treated God's promised blessing casually. 
What has God said to you that you have been treating casually, lightly? Uh, I spent most of my adult life thinking that speeding in a car was not a moral issue. It was a legal issue and you might get caught, but what a silly law. About four or five years ago, Holy Spirit began to knock on my... I don't know what he knocked on, but I felt it. <sighs> I had enough sensitivity to feel it. And he said, you know, in the scriptures it says to obey the authorities. This is an issue for you. And you need to start, whether you, whatever you feel about it, you need to do what's right. To my shame... It took me about two years before I properly accepted what the Spirit was saying to me. God said, this is the right thing to do. Don't drive so fast. And I, I, just, I didn't want to hear it because I like getting to places quickly. <laughs> so God began to help me and just little whispers from the Spirit. He started to say, you know, your disobedience in this regard makes me less minded to talk to you. And what was going on was I was keeping the word of God. He'd spoken to me really clearly at arm's length. And my heart was hardened. There was an insensitivity to the Holy Spirit that came about because of that. Take care to obey, else, like Esau, we will miss the grace of God. The grace of God, one way it comes to us is that the Holy Spirit speaks to us and guides us and his words are life and his kingdom comes and we're transformed and the people around us are blessed. That's the grace of God. And here's me holding him at arm's length and missing out on the grace because I didn't want to obey. I don't know what God's saying to you. I've got a little feeling that a few people right now might be feeling convicted about speeding. But, um... <laughs> but what is God saying to you? What has God said to you that you've put to one side? This morning, he would so love for you to give in to him. <laughs> and not just so that he wins the argument, but there'll be more blessing. There'll be more blessing. Take care to obey. Now, one of the reasons that we don't obey is we don't stop and think about it. We don't stop and reflect on what God said to us. And I have to be honest and say... For me, Sunday mornings really don't work for this. Um, Sunday mornings really don't work for me to pause and reflect on what God's saying to me because I've just got a lot of other things to think about. So I have other patterns in my life. I have a couple of fortnightly arrangements where I sit down with people uh, and reflect together on what God's saying to me and what I'm going to do about it. 
do, I sit down fortnightly with Steve Thomas, who many of you will know, and I sit down fortnightly on a Skype conference call with other pastors of churches who want to do the same thing. And so on a week between those things, on a weekly basis, I'm asking, God, what are you saying to me? What do I need to do? What are you saying to me? What do I need to do? And I just want to encourage you. I mean, maybe that Sunday mornings work brilliantly for you. I hope they do. <laughs> Put quite a lot of effort in after all. To have time to hear what God's saying to you, to reflect on it, and to go into the rest of your week with fresh clarity about what God's saying to you to do. But it's your problem. I mean, it's your responsibility to hear God for yourself, to take care of what he says and to obey. There we go. Here's another thing. Uh, where were we? See if we can go just one. Take care of the church. At the beginning of this passage, there's a few different ways that it says, look after each other. Take care. Make every effort. See to it, it says in verse 15, that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. There's a community dynamic to this. It's not just about us as individuals. The, quote, the, the thing about a bitter root is actually a quote from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 29. And it says there that there are blessings promised for God's people for obedience and curses for disobedience. Praise God, we get the blessings for obedience nowadays. We don't get cursed by God because there's forgiveness. But in that context of blessings and curses, it says, just be careful that there's not someone that's like a bitter tasting, poisonous thing that grows up amongst you. Because if there's sin amongst you, then the whole community is going to suffer for that. Because God looks on us as a people. God looks on us as a body. And I think often we read this thing about a bitter root growing up and we, we read it simply individually. Is there any bitterness that I am harboring? Again, and that's a good reflection. To, it's a good question to ask. Am I bitter in any way? But what this verse is driving at is that is there anyone amongst us who is poisonous? The phrase that we'd actually use in English rather more is, is there a bad apple? That's what it's getting at. And this is, this is challenging our thinking. It's because when God looks at us, he looks at us as a, as a body, as a people, and he wants to take pleasure in the church as a whole. That picture that there was of Christ surrounded by his saints. There's... there's determined kind of sinfulness in, in that picture, then the whole thing, the whole thing is polluted. Do you see that? I've got a picture that's going to help with that. Do you get the feeling? God wants a pure church. And uh, I'm not trying to incite a witch hunt. I'm not. But it says here that we should all take care of the church. I think one of the things that sometimes happens is you think, well, that's what we've got leaders for. Brilliant. Someone else has done something wrong or someone else is doing something wrong. Tell one of the leaders, they'll sort it out. 
the scriptures encourage a rather more responsible attitude from all of us to one another, don't they? In fact, the word here in Greek uh, for seeing to it that no one uh, becomes a bitter root, the word is episkopoi, which might ring bells for some of you. It's the word that's used for overseers. When overseers are appointed in the church, that's the word that's used there. And it's used here for everyone to play a part in overseeing the whole by looking out for each other. So here's my second question. Is there someone that you personally need to challenge? Is there someone that you personally need to challenge as we call each other up to be the pure and holy people of God? I said this wasn't a message of the kind that I'm used to bringing. Uh, You might be thinking that. There's another take care. So first take care was take care to obey, else we'll miss God's grace. Second thing is take care of the church, else it will be polluted. Here's the third take care. Take care in worship. The reason that this passage gives is otherwise it will not be acceptable. Take care in worship. And again, where it says take care to obey, because you've had such a bigger revelation of the will of God in Christ, there's more obligation to obey now than there was then, back in Old Testament times. The same is true in our worship. We have seen so much more of this glorious God. So much more to adore. So much more that should cause us to fall on our knees and to offer all that we are to him. Take care in worship. Otherwise, it won't be acceptable. This word in verse 28, worship God acceptably with reverence. Chipper used the word reverence or irreverence, one or the other. Reverence, you said earlier, it's calling us up to worship God with reverence. It's not a word we use that much. I think perhaps we've come to associate reverence with being solemn. Reverence means looking glum. Um, pretending that whatever, you know, whatever fear, um, whatever joy of the Lord that you've got, making sure that it's so deep that no one ever sees it. <laughs> and that's not what reverence is about. Uh, one of the things that sometimes happens in our congregation in Oxford is that the children throw flowers, because Lulu brings a bowl of flowers, and children are throwing flowers in worship. That's not very solemn, but it is reverent, because it's being done to honor the Lord. There are some things that, see, reverence is an attitude of the heart. And I don't want to give a list of do's and don'ts, because pretty much anything you do might perhaps be done with a reverent heart. But there are a few things that I think probably aren't. I, I think playing on our phones in worship is it's going to be hard for me to understand that as an act of reverence. Uh, nattering to one another in the context of worship. I, 
I imagine is probably not reverent, whatever else it may be. Uh, my guess would be that if you're able to stand and able to kneel, physically able to do those things, that if you never do either and are always sat down in the presence of God, I just... Somehow reverence makes us do something different to that, doesn't it? When we honour the Lord, it's not about me and how I feel. It's about him and who he is and what would be right to do for him. Reverent worshippers want to give the best to Jesus. Reverent worshippers prefer not just to rock up to worship. Reverent worshippers would prefer to prepare their hearts for time with the Lord. Now, Muslims who believe that God can't be truly known, it's beyond all of that, wash before praying as a sign of reverence. I think there's a parallel here with the Old to the New Testament. Those who've not got the same revelation of God as we have, and yet... They're washing because they want, they understand that if God's holy, then you've got to do something to recognize that and honor him and come clean into his presence. Actually, Jesus is very clear in saying it's not about washing the outside that matters, it's washing the inside that matters. For us, it's about preparing our hearts. What might it mean to prepare our hearts? Well, here's a few things that we might do. I think it would be most natural for reverent worshippers to have an early morning quiet time on a Sunday, asking God to anoint our meeting, seeking a spiritual gift with which to bless others. That's like a naturally reverent thing to do. We're coming into the presence of God. And we don't want to miss out on the grace that he has for us. What? What? There's a, I need to be careful because we've had some great cakes this morning and I enjoyed them. <laughs> but if we're lingering over a Sunday breakfast and arriving late because of that to a place where we're together seeking the grace of God, it just has got a little bit too much of an echo of Esau about it. I'd rather have the food. We'll get to the spiritual blessings sometime. You know, whatever. I fear that we will miss out on the grace of God. A really appropriate thing to do as we prepare to gather on a Sunday morning is fast breakfast and use the time to pray. It's like, if we honor the Lord, isn't that a natural thing to do? Isn't that a straightforward thing? Take an hour on Saturday night to worship and to pray. Go to bed knowing that you've connected afresh with the Lord, that your heart's prepared. So you can maybe have your breakfast on Sunday morning, but still have a sense of coming. So the least I think we can do is pay attention when there's a call to worship given. Yeah. And that's, like, that's your easiest option. Someone else is serving it up on a plate for you to ask you, please, to pay attention to the presence of the Lord. Surely that's the least we can do.
as we come to honour the Lord. Now, I'm not, as I said, I'm not wanting to try and establish some more rules, like we need more rules in our lives. It's a heart thing, and I hope you can hear the heart that's saying, what would be a natural way of expressing reverence for the Lord, honour for the Lord? The question is, what will be acceptable to him? Take care in worship. Take care in worship that it will be reverent and therefore acceptable to God. We don't want to offer him unacceptable worship. The first time that I ever encountered God, I was aged seven. I went to um, a Methodist church. There were some prayers being prayed, and I felt funny. And I ran out of the church building and uh, didn't know what to make of it all. My mum came out to tell me off. What are you doing? It was that kind of tone of voice. Um, Silly boy running off. And I couldn't put it into words. But what happened was actually the fear of God came on me at that point. An awareness that I was in this gathering of people and that there was another one present who's greater than all of us. And as this scripture says, some dim awareness at the age of seven that this one was a holy one and a consuming fire. I ran out because it felt a bit scary to remain in the presence of God. And at that point, I wasn't born again. I'd not learned what it was to be forgiven. So I was right to be afraid of this consuming fire. (laughs) My third question, are you careful to honour the Lord? Are you careful to honour the Lord? First question, is there anything that God said to you that you've just put to one side? If so, you need to take hold of it again. Second question, is there anyone that you need to challenge in love? <laughs> so it's not a time for a witch hunt or beating each other up, but the Spirit of God will prompt us to call each other up. Is there anyone that God's spoken to you about challenging over some particular matter? If so, you need to do it. It will feel risky. You'll probably get it wrong. They might be offended. I as a been a pastor a few years. Um, I, I quite regularly, because I will challenge people on things, get it a little bit wrong, and people are a bit offended that I've assumed certain things about them. But you don't kind of do, you don't challenge people enough that you ever get beyond that. It's risky. It's self-sacrificial. You do something that might not leave us feeling great, but it's for the good of others. Is God speaking to you about challenging anyone? And lastly... Are we being careful to honour the Lord? Take care to obey, else we'll miss God's grace. Take care of the church, else it will be polluted. Take care in worship, else it will not be acceptable. Let's take care.